The Oxford Sparks Podcast, Episode 7, Artificial Intelligence, Part 2. These days when we take a picture, we point a phone at someone and this magic box appears around the face. You might wonder how a computer, small enough to fit in our pocket, knows what a face is. It's essentially magic for most of us. But it's not magic. We've learned how to make machines that learn. We see this every time we interact with computers. So if you conduct a Google search, for example, you're using a machine that has been trained over and over. Every time we interact with a computer, with a big service like Facebook or Google, they will use the interaction and they will learn to provide a better service automatically. My name is uh, Nando De Freitas and I'm a professor in uh, computer science at Oxford University. Uh, my specialty is machine learning. Uh, that is, I am very interested in designing machines that can learn from data and uh, by learning from data are able to solve uh, problems that uh, we couldn't solve before. We've made huge progress. Like, uh, we wouldn't have dreamt of the progress we made over the last five years. If, if you had asked anyone six years ago, they would not dream that we would be where we are now. This revolution has come about because of something called deep learning. What is deep learning? So deep learning is a sort of a branding for some ideas that have existed for a while. The idea of deep learning was born in the 1950s and 60s with research by a couple of scientists. Hubel and Wiesel um, figure out that when you show um, a stripe of light, sort of a beam of light that you could show at different angles to a cat, the different neurons in the visual cortex of the cat would fire. So, you, so then they could see that there were neurons that will fire when they see a vertical bar, and there will be other neurons that will fire when they see a horizontal bar. And so essentially, that is, some neurons detect vertical edges in images, other neurons detect horizontal edges, and in fact, they would, through this is how we understand the structure of an image. By using neurons that specifically recognise vertical and horizontal lines, the brain can understand the most basic level of what you're looking at. From here, it builds a second layer of understanding based on how these lines come together to form corners, then groups of corners together to form shapes. You start identifying, OK, this is a nose. A nose is a common thing that happens a lot in data sets. And if you look at all the big data sets like YouTube, you start seeing uh, faces of cats and, <laughs> and dogs and puppies and so on. We're thinking of this as a neural network that is many units that interact with each other and they're organized in layers. As you go further up in the layers you start getting parts and then um, much further up where you get to an area um, of the brain called IT for the inferotemporal cortex where you start getting uh, representations of objects. And in another area of the brain, the hippocampus, important for memory, there are neurons that will respond when they see a specific image. So there's this famous article in neuroscience that shows that there's these neurons that will fire when you see a picture of Halle Berry, or, and, and the same neuron will fire for different Halle Berry in different poses, or even for just seeing the name Halle Berry. Um, so, and this is essentially how our brain is coding the world. There's different neurons that are coding for the different things that we see. 
This means that you have neurons that recognise your mum, your dog and other people and objects you encounter. So we have these layers of neurons and there's many of these layers and th that's where the term deep comes from. And so what we've tried to do in machine learning is we build uh, models that will build representations that have many of these independent units uh, that talk to each other. And each of these units have knobs that you can tune. Um, so you could think of this as not like a classical computer. So in a classical computer, the classical computers are quite dumb. You have to come and you have to tell them what to do. But if you try to explain to a computer what a face is, you'll find that this is in incredibly hard. And in fact, it took many decades of researchers looking into this because you start explaining that it has dark eyebrows and top of eyes. And then you start realizing, well, there's many varieties of people with different colors of eyebrows, different shapes. And so you need to explain all the to computer, all the different shapes and colors and variations of a face. There are seven billion people on Earth and we're all different. So the number of differences between faces is so large that it would take programmers all their lifetime to explain all the rules to a computer of what makes a face a face and not some other object like a vase or a house. This machine sees an input, which is an image of a face, and then we tell the machine that that is a face. So we provide a supervisor, what we call a supervisory signal or a teacher signal. We, we tell the computer that the label for that image is face. We also show the computer many images that are not faces, and we tell the computer those are not faces. What the computer then does is tune itself to take into account the new information it's given, so that when it sees a face, it outputs the label, face. And when it isn't seeing a face, it outputs the label, not face. This is essentially a computer altering variables in its program any time it makes a mistake. So it keeps tuning, keeps changing the knobs until it, uh, it's able to actually always predict the right thing. It's able to tell whether it's a face or not a face. So this way, the machine is doing it all the work by itself. And by how much those knobs get tuned and change, that essentially is what we call an algorithm. And to make the machine understand in finer and finer detail, you need to be able to fine-tune all the variables in more and more detailed ways. We adjust what every neuron is saying to the other neuron. So all the interactions between these neurons are things that get learned from the data. And the revolution that's happened is because with lots and lots of data, we can now train these very big machines. And these machines now are learning to recognize images and translate and recognize sounds, all thanks to the fact that we have the infrastructure that now allows us to learn big models from data. Vision is really complex. That's why we need so much of our brain to do it. And because it's such a complex thing, we can't hope to solve it with a small model. It's the big data that's allowed us to provide enough signal to finally learn those big models and finally start solving these um, tasks that we could do, couldn't do before. In fact, in, in many cases, with superhuman performance. So aside from our phones recognising faces, what sort of uses will machines that understand what they're seeing have in the future? This will be the case, especially medical imaging, where you would hope machines will actually do better than the best radiologists in the world. And not only will they give you better diagnosis, but they will do it much faster so that you don't have to wait several weeks for 
uh, the results of your medical test, but you, the machine will be able to very quickly within microseconds give you an answer as to whether that uh, scan that you just took indicates a tumor or not. And what we've been discovering recently is a small set of uni universal procedures, uh, subtasks, subrules that allows us to actually learn models from data and then to use these models subsequently to do new things to predict and so on. So it's a bit like the recipe for baking a cake. There are some common rules, but if you change the details, you'll end up with a different cake. For example, if you add cocoa to a basic sponge cake, rather than a plain cake, you get a chocolate cake at the end of it. The way we think of the model, we tend to think of, say, vision and speech recognition and machine translation, medical diagnosis, controlling a car automatically to build a self-driving car as being very different things. But from our perspective, there's no difference. Because uh, essentially what we're trying to design is brain-like models. They just see data and then they learn to adjust themselves by following these recipes. Data in, data out. So whenever we need to go into areas where the domains are too vast for humans to comprehend, um, if there's data there to train machines that are capable of comprehending uh, those environments, then the machines will do tasks that humans can't. And in fact, a big part of this vision is that we will be able to solve problems in the future that humans are clearly failing to be able to solve. In the future, researchers want to create machines that can make decisions, not a trivial task. So right now, there's being able to have machines that learn how to act in the world and learn how to plan is one of the big challenges. And that's, I think that's going to be the focus for, for the next five years, is to get better and better planning. Machines that also are able to... We, we're going deeper in the brain as well, and we're now trying to look at these processes, the processes of decision-making and, and of reasoning and of also building bigger memories. Right now, the amount of resources that we're using to solve these problems is far larger than um, you know, the, the amount of resources that humans consume. And so lowering energy costs is very important. And, and this is something that I hope will happen over the next 15 to 20 years. But eventually we're also going to start answering the big questions. We, we're going to start getting a better handle on what people mean by intelligence. We'll, we'll understand better what people mean by consciousness, what they mean by mind. And I think a lot of these points of debate in cognitive science as to whether we're born with certain faculties or not, whether those things could be learned, we'll have a much better understanding. We'll have a much better understanding of how the brain works. Uh, we'll have a much better understanding of mind and, and language and decision-making. But it does seem that intelligence is an elusive target. We used to think that being able to look at the world and tell whether what you're seeing is a face or, or a computer or a mouse is intelligence. But now that the computers are able to do that, and we know the, uh, the, the procedures that they use, the recipes for getting them to do that, so we no longer think of that as intelligence. Um, speech recognition, it's becoming quite mundane in our phones, so we stop thinking of it as intelligence. So what we think of as intelligence keeps changing. It's a moving target. And in, the, in that sense, one day we might figure it all out, 
and then we'll go oh okay so that was it no big deal let's move on you've been listening to the oxford sparks podcast narrated by me lou sumner and produced by the university of oxford for more fascinating science visit www.oxfordsparks.net